past two sermons, I've concentrated more on telling you what to be cautious of than telling you what to pursue. This morning, I want to switch that a little bit and uh, focus a little more on what are the characteristics of a true friend? What is it you need to develop in your own life so you can be the kind of friend that you would like to have for yourself? And that can take some work. Now, remember, there are various levels of friendship. Can you push it on it and then click once? There we go. There are various levels of friendship, and um, there's a different level of trust and intimacy within each of those levels. And as the trust level goes up, so does the intimacy and the influence of those people that would be that kind of friend. As the number of friends in each level, um, or I should say as, as the friendships deepen, become more intimate, the number of people in that category is less. You just can't handle that many. Uh, none of us can. Some can handle more than others, but none of us can handle that many. Because you can have hundreds, thousands of acquaintances, but you don't know hardly anything about them, so there's very little trust given to them. Then there's uh, casual friends. They've got a little more influence. You trust them a little bit because you know a little bit more about them, but you're not going to trust them a whole lot. Then there are close friends. Now, from this level on, there's influence. Close friends are, are those that you know well enough to seek their counsel to help you in certain areas of your life, uh, usually whatever the area of mutual interest is. And the more personal that close friendship is, then the broader their influence will be on all areas of your life because you trust them that much. And eventually you have a core group, a small group. You call those your intimate friends or your best friends. And these are the people that you trust well enough, it's been tested over time, you could bear your soul to them. And you know it's safe there. They're going to give you wise counsel and help you with whatever you're going through. Now, the Hebrew word for friend and neighbor is the same word. It's reah. And so friendships do start at this acquaintance level, and then they deepen or become more intimate as you learn more about them and trust them. Now, most of the comments I'm going to be making from the book of Proverbs today is dealing with the levels of friendship at close and intimate. But friendships definitely start in the acquaintance level. We'll talk more about that next week when we talk about neighbors. But remember that the levels of friendship between you doesn't necessarily have to be the same. In fact, a lot of times it's not. You can have someone that you consider um, you know, a, a casual friend, but they consider you a close friend. They don't have a whole lot of influence on you, but you have a whole lot of influence on them because of that difference. Okay? Now, because of the emphasis upon influencing one another, we want to concentrate on then what does it mean to be a good friend? How can you be the kind of person that's going to have a godly influence on other people? Now, the first sermon in this series, I emphasize the importance of being balanced in friendship. And to be a good friend, you cannot be isolated from other people. We talked about Proverbs 18.1. It exposes the problem, the foolishness involved with that. It says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. So those who have few or no close or intimate friends, they're in a dangerous position. It's a position contrary to sound wisdom. And that's regardless of the reason for that isolation. It could be fear. It could be... Um, Expedience, it could be your pride. 
And yes, there is a fear in relationships. There's a fear in friendship. You could get hurt. Well, the reality is is you're going to get hurt. That's just the nature of the beast we live in. This is a fallen world. We live among sinners. And even other Christians are saved sinners. We're not glorified saints yet, no matter how much we want to be there. So we're going to fail each other. So yes, there is a risk of hurt. And yet it is God's design for each of us to have close and imminent friends, for that is how he works in our life. It's through other people. That's his choice. That's what he's decided to do. Isolation, whether it's physical or just emotional, because some people can be in a room full of people and they're still isolated emotionally, you block all the blessings in all directions according to God's design. That is his design for the church. And so we need to be aware of that. Inundation with friends actually causes the same problem. This is the idea that a number of acquaintances and casual friends have become so great we become overwhelmed. And in being overwhelmed, it becomes extremely difficult to develop close and and best friends, intimate friends. That's one of the primary problems with these social networks. There are a lot of benefits to social networks, but then there's some problems. Even the modern stuff like uh, Facebook and mass communication vehicles like Twitter, there are some good things that you can do with that. But you have to be aware of the danger and be careful Otherwise, you can get sucked into a world of chattering, self-absorbed, shallow people who pose for the world to see their diaries, their random thoughts, and information that actually has little to nothing to do with your life. It's not even helpful. And yet, your time is sucked into this. That's not helpful. You need to be pursuing and developing close and intimate friends. Okay? Don't let the number of acquaintances and casual friends keep you from doing that. Now... How do you keep that balanced? Well, it starts with having the proper goal in life. Have the proper goal. And God gives us those goals. Romans 8.29 describes it this way, to become conformed to the image of his son. It's become like Christ. Ephesians 2.4 and 4.24 says we are to be holy and blameless before him, and that is done by putting on the new self. That's what we're after. Romans 12, 1 and 2 explains that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in granting us salvation in himself through faith in what he's done and him, then all Christians are present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That's the reasonable worship of service that we should give him. We're to resist the pressures of this world to conform us to its image and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those are our goals. And the priorities that come with that will help keep our friendships in balance so that we are helping each other reach those goals. We will be godly friends that are going to strive to influence others from acquaintances to the most intimate friend because that's our goal. We want to help one another become like Christ. Proverbs twelve twenty six states, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. That's what we want to be, isn't it? a guide to those around us. And at the same time, we want to be very cautious about those that will influence us. Why? Because the same proverb warns as well, but the way of the wicked leads us astray. Proverbs 13.20 explains that he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So what do we want to 
have for friends that are going to influence us? Wise men or fools? Wise men. We want to become like them. We want to understand and follow the warning of Psalm 1 and make sure that we are not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, that we're not um, standing in the way of sinners, lest we become those who become seated on this, with the scoffers. We don't want to go there. And so we'll take heed to the strong warnings we talked about in Proverbs a couple weeks ago. Be careful of those who have characteristics of being sinners or the wicked, the, those who are evil, the immoral, those who be characterized by foolishness, those who are hot-tempered or gossips. Now, there are a lot of other characteristic Proverbs warns about, but those particular ones, it tells us directly, stay away from them. You don't want to suffer the harm they'll bring into your life. Now, there's other characteristics, but a lot of these are contrasted with the positive things we should be incorporating in our life. So I'm going to mention those in the context of developing godly attributes. So let's talk about first about being a godly friend. What are we talking about? Well, godly friendship begins with humility and selflessness. Or let me put it a different way, all right? To be a godly friend, you have to be more focused on being a friend than finding a friend. Does that make sense? It's a completely different focus. Most people are after trying to find somebody, and that's not what we're after. We're trying to be somebody. Be the friend. Consider the example the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us. Now, Jesus had every single attribute of what it means to be a godly friend. Completely. And it began with a love that sacrificed itself in the best interest of those he chose. He gave of himself. Paul points that out in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Paul is writing to the Philippians in that particular section, he wants them to be unified. Be a unified church. Don't be divided up like the Corinthians. Be unified. How are you going to do that? Well, he says in verse 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That goes back to this idea. Be a friend instead of looking for a friend. Develop these characteristics. And then he shows that Jesus is the ultimate example of all of that, isn't he? Let this mind be in you as was in Christ Jesus. What kind of mindset? Jesus is God, and yet, Philippians 2 tells us, he set aside part of that glory that is due to him, and it was due him, and he condescended and became a man. And not just a man... But he also set aside the royalty that belongs to him as well. He's king. And he came as a slave, a servant. And then he went further and he died as the substitute for our sins. That's humility and selflessness. Paul said in Romans 5.8 that this was a demonstration of God's love toward us and that Christ died for us while we were what? Yet sinners. Nothing attractive there. But that's what he did. That's love. That's being a real friend. Because Jesus himself said in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
So Jesus is the ultimate example of humility and selflessness, and he did it while we're still his enemies. There can be no better friend than that. So Jesus is our example, and we as Christians are supposed to be striving to be like him. And so everything I'll point out in Proverbs that talks about being a godly friend, a true friend, is simply one step towards that goal of being like Christ. That's where we're really heading. And so for that reason, the advice from Proverbs isn't optional for us as Christians. It is simply sound wisdom. In fact, it's sound wisdom for all people. Now, the first attribute I want to talk about is humility. The reason is is that out of humility arise the other characteristics we want to develop within our life in order to be a good friend. Humility arises out of having a proper view of yourself before God. Humility is the opposite of pride, and pride was the original sin. Isaiah 14 tells us about Satan's pride and how it lifted him up and caused him to think that he would be like God, and Satan has been working ever since, and to usurp God. Eve disobeyed God's command and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in part because she wanted to be like God. That's pride. Pride leads directly to selfishness and demanding things to be your way and seeing others as a means to your end. And God's opposed the proud. James 4, 6. Proverbs 3, 34 states that God scoffs the scoffers while he gives grace to those who are afflicted. Proverbs 6, 16 states that God hates even the haughty eyes of those who are proud. In fact, they're an abomination before him. Humility goes the opposite direction. A humble person recognizes they're but a creature made by God. And so we will think rightly about ourselves and we'll seek to submit to and honor that creator. Romans 12.3 tells us that we should think rightly about ourselves. And we will if we will think about ourselves from God's perspective rather than man's. The humble do not think either too highly or too lowly of themselves. They recognize all they have, all that they do, comes from the Lord. And so all praise must be directed to him. So no matter what wonderful thing you ever do, who gets the praise? God does. You didn't do that by yourself. In fact, you couldn't do it unless God was enabling you. At the same time, it means that we're going to be uh, able to push on even when we're afraid and don't think we can do anything because it's not dependent upon us. If God asks you to do something, do you have to be able to do it? Actually, you don't. Those who are humble have a greater concern about obeying God and pushing on to glorify him than if whether they're successful. The success belongs in whose hands? God's hands. So we simply push forward and do the best we can and leave the results up to God. Fear of failure is overwhelmed by the desire to obey God. We simply strive to do our best. That's thinking rightly about yourself. Not too high, not too low. Now, the proud also do not like it when they're not in control of the situation. Or they can't, uh, you know, they're planning for the future and it's not going the way they want. They want to have all their ducks in a row and everything's got to be just right. They don't like the idea that God is sovereign and they're very disturbed by Proverbs 20, verse 24, which says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord... How then can a man understand his way? Most of the time, I don't think we do. 
But that truth doesn't disturb the humble. The humble, in fact, are at peace. Why? They like Psalm 16.9, which says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Why? Because Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. My trust in God gives me peace when I don't know what the next day is going to bring. In fact, I'd have to put it this way. For the humble, part of the adventure of life is this winding pathway the Lord takes us on in reaching our final destination. We know where it's going to end, don't we? It ends in heaven. So from here to there, it's just an adventure. And that's a good thing. For the humble, we look back and we praise God where he's taken us and the path, sometimes circuitous, of how we got where we are currently. And we thank God for that. And as we look to the future, we look at it with a pleasant anticipation of where the Lord's going to direct us to the next event. Even if, perhaps even more so, if it's not as we planned. Right? I can almost put it this way. Those who have done a, a lot of traveling... By car, you know, you get on the interstate and it's right through there, right? There's not a whole lot to anticipate. I think interstates are boring. I'm sorry. I think they are. Even in the south, you go through there and all you see is trees. And I know there's a lot more there. Get off the highway and wind your way and see what adventure you come. Just be careful going through some of those small towns. They are speed traps. Obey the law and have a good adventure. There's all sorts of wonderful things to experience. Isn't life like that? Who wants to be on the, the super highway getting to the end as fast as possible? <laughs> Let me wind around and see what God does. That's an adventure. If you're humble, you enjoy it. Humility is also necessary for wisdom. Proverbs 11:2 states, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 22, 4 ties humility with the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, remember Proverbs 1, 7. It's the beginning of wisdom. It says the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Humility is important. Proverbs 15, 33 also links the two. It says the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom and before honor comes humility. As I already explained in Proverbs 13, 20, wisdom is a necessary characteristic of good friends because a foolish friend is dangerous and leads to harm. But humility is also important to friendship because, uh, describe it this way, it's the grease that keeps the gears of the friendship moving smoothly. Okay? It's humility. Humble people see others as those created by God for his purposes. The unsaved are valued because they're created in God's image and they need to hear the gospel. And so we befriend them and reach out to them and we'll sacrifice for them because we want them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, well, we help them to mature in godliness just as we'd hope they'd help us. We want to gather together and then glorify the Lord together. And so we reach out in humility to other Christians. There's never room for any uh, um, jealousy among other Christians because if they're doing something great, and it's better than you, will praise God, because the goal is to glorify God, isn't it? So humility is important to the friendship. Humility leads to selflessness and generosity 
and love because there's something now more important than your personal power, your personal glory, your personal comfort. It's the glory of God. Humble people are also more aware of their own sin and so they're more forgiving of other people's sins. Matthew 19.11 states, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it's his glory to overlook transgressions. Proverbs 12.16 gives a contrast in this area between a humble, prudent man and a fool. It says, A fool's vexation is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. It's not that the humble don't get upset. It's not that they ignore people's sin. But humility lays a foundation for them to be slow to anger and so they can properly deal with the sin that is in others in a kinder way, a more gentle way, a way to try and encourage them out of it. They don't become vengeful, even if it's a personal attack. It comes from humility. The humble are also a lot faster to work out relationships and seek forgiveness if they've done something wrong. Proverbs 6 gives a scenario of someone who has become indebted to a neighbor. But the principle in verse 3 dealing with this goes beyond just monetary indebtedness. It says this, Do this then, my son. Deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. So that's a pleading for mercy and forgiveness. Jesus talked about the same principle back in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar and go your way and first be reconciled with your brother and then come back and present your offering. In other words, your ability to worship the Lord properly is tied into this having proper relationships with others. It's part of friendship. You're going to be hindered if those relationships are not right. As Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so humble people can pursue that peace because they're, not, they're quick to seek forgiveness. They're quick to grant it. Proud people can't have that peace. I think that's one reason that Proverbs 16, 19 says this. It is better to be a... Uh, to be of humble spirit with the lowly and to divide the spoil with the proud. Peace and true friendship are a lot more valuable than riches. Are you humble? Are you this kind of friend, a humble friend to other people? If not, then set aside your pride, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, learn to view life from God's perspective instead of your own sinful, selfish one, And humility then will then flow into your life because then it's no longer about you. It's about the glory of our creator. That's the foundation for humility. Now, another characteristic that really rises out of humility is love. Now, by love, I'm not referring to fond feelings of affection. Now, certainly among close friends, there there are fond feelings of affection. Okay, That's, that's normal. We like to be with those kinds of people. But I'm referring to the kind of love embodied in Jesus Christ and that we talked about earlier, this sacrificial love. It's found the concept of the Greek word agape. It's a love that sacrifices itself for the best interest of the other person. It is selfless in its consideration of others, as Proverbs 17, 17 states, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. You see, true friendship is not based on what you get, but rather on what you give. 
Does that make sense? It's not about what you're getting out of it. What are you giving to it? That's where true friendship is found. And for that reason, that kind of friendship continues on in tough circumstances. It is a true friend that gladly will come and rescue you at 2 a.m. on a cold and rainy night because your car broke down. Who wants to get out of bed then? A true friend will and won't even grumble about it. A true friend will watch your kids, will run your errands, and even clean up after you when you're sick. That's a true friend. A true friend will share with you their last slice of bread, even though their own cupboards are bare. Because they care about you, and they trust God. Whom are you willing to do those kinds of things for? To whom are you a true friend that loves at all times? Now, let me emphasize again that this is not optional for Christians. We are commanded to love one another in this very manner. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's not optional for us. We need to learn to do this. Now, that may sound difficult. In fact, I'd have to say it's impossible for those who are selfish and for the unbelieving. But for those who say they are Christians, you made that profession of faith in him. You know what it is? It allows God to love other people through you. That's all it really is. Because it's not going to come from you. It's going to come from God through you. You are simply a vessel of mercy to them. Now, that fits perfectly well with the purpose of a Christian's life. So loving in that manner becomes a joy. It's not a burden. Not at all. Loyalty is another aspect of true and close, intimate friends. We examined the first part of Proverbs 18.24 a couple weeks ago. And that part says, a uh, man of many friends will come to ruin. This is contrary in the second part. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You see, a true friend is not fickle. We've all had fickle friends, but they're not true friends, were they? Now, a brother is the natural one that's going to stick with you regardless of what circumstances you face, and yet for various reasons they might not. I mean, a pragmatic one is distance. My brothers are 3,000 miles away. Proverbs 27.10 tells me that better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. By the time they could get a ticket, get on a plane and get here, whatever crisis I'm facing would be over. That's practical. But unfortunately, there's a lot of other factors that have destroyed what should be natural. Pride, envy, hurt, jealousy. Those things can turn siblings against each other. Consider King David. His brothers turned against him. They wouldn't really have anything to do with him. They became jealous. David ended up with a closer relationship with Jonathan than he did his own brothers. Or how about Jesus? All of his siblings turned against him, so much so that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he had to turn the care of his mother over to John rather than to a sibling. A true friend is going to be characterized by loyalty that extends even generationally. Proverbs 27.10 tells us, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. King Solomon honored the friendship's of his father, King David, especially with Hiram, king of Tyre. And because of that, all these materials uh, flowed down to Israel for the building of the temple. 
Solomon's son, Rehoboam, did not follow that advice. He turned to his contemporaries for counsel rather than his father's friends. The result? Very foolish counsel, and the kingdom was split in two. And while loyalty is a prized character true friend, be careful here. Don't expect perfection. Proverbs 20, verse 6, soberly reminds us, many a man proclaims his loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Don't be surprised even if a true friend will fail you on occasion. As you think back in your own life, how often has that happened to you? But even more sobering is how often have you done that to someone you said was your friend and you failed them? You see the necessity then of humility and love for true friendship? Because that is what enables you to work through those things, bring about reconciliation when there is a failure in that loyalty. Related to royal uh, loyalty is confidentiality. It's another character quality of a true friend. In other words, friends are not gossips that reveal secrets of friends. Proverbs 11, 12, and 13 states, He who despises his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding keeps silent. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy conceals the matter. Now let's face it, it is tempting, very tempting, to reveal the secret of someone you do not like and you'd like to see harmed. Isn't it? Man, I got some juicy stuff here. I'm going to get this and, man, I'm going to nail that guy. That's tempting. Proverbs warns us that you're only demonstrating a lack in your own character and it will come back and bite you. Proverbs 25, 9 warns, argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another, lest he who hears it reproach you and the evil report about you will not pass away. It comes up against you. Now, I'll expand on this idea of despising your neighbor showing a lack of sense next week. This morning, I just want to emphasize this part. A true friend is not a gossip. They will keep a confidence even of those they may not even like. It's a matter of character. Proverbs 17.9 adds this, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. That's why a couple weeks ago we warned you so much about gossips. Because a true friend is also characterized by love, they will not only keep a confidence, they're going to seek to cover the transgression. Proverbs 10.12 adds, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. The actions of love are contrast with those who repeat a matter and expose the transgression, which then causes strife and breaks up even what had been an intimate friendship. Now, does that mean that, that to be a friend you need to hide the sin of other people so they don't get in trouble? Well, yes and no. That's not the answer you wanted to hear, is it? <laughs> well, it depends. Depends on what? Well, it's yes to the extent that you're seeking to protect them from public shame so that you can deal with the transgression properly in private. That's the covering it up and why you do it. No to any extent in which covering their rebellion is condoning their sin. We don't condone sin. Being loyal and keeping a confidence doesn't mean a true friend takes the side of sin and excuses it. In fact, a true friend, a godly friend, must stand against sin and bring about the needed rebuke even at the risk of losing the friendship. That's hard. 
But it's true. Because we have a friendship with God that should be greater all the time. And that brings us to the next quality of a true friend. Honest. Honesty in all things. And candor with friends is crucial to true friendship. It's easy to gather friends who are going to tell you what you want to hear. But they're the people who only are going to do that as long as they're getting what they want. Proverbs 19, 6 and 7 tells us this. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. <laughs> Don't we all line up when someone's giving stuff out? Oh, wow, this is great. And yet, verse 7, what a contrast. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. These are fickle people. Pity the man that has such friends and does not have true friends that are going to tell him the truth. While love will cover a transgression, it is only so the rebellion that is there can be dealt with properly in private first. Proverbs 27, verse 6 states, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Beware of those people who will praise you and tell you what you want to hear and will not challenge you and will not rebuke you. Be very wary of them. Such people are leeches. They are leeches trying to suck stuff out of you. They're only there to get what they can get out of you. And when you are no longer useful for them, their departure will be swift. You will see them quickly latch onto the next person they're going to try and uh, parasitize. And then don't be surprised if they're stepping on your face as they're trying to climb a little higher in playing king of the hill. What silly games we still play as adults. King of the hill. Except now we translate into other things. Social groups. It occurs in politics. It occurs in um, at work. You all probably experience that if your business is of any size at all. It occurs in uh, any kind of social club. People are vying for social status. And tragically, you will find it occurs in the church as well. Those are not true friends. You will find that their demeanor can quickly change from flattery to absolute venom. Be generous with your compliments meant to encourage people. But do not be a flatterer. Now, none of us has reached perfection, or will we reach it perfection in this life? As much as we'd like to, it's not going to happen. And so there are going to be points where we're going to fail in our following the Lord as we should. And for that reason, we need these friends who are honest and candid, who are willing to wound us when it is needed. But the wounds from a friend, we are told, are faithful. They're true. They're firm. They're trustworthy. Now, we all enjoy pleasant relationships. But that is not the goal of friendship. We are here to help one another become godly people. The relationship will become more pleasant as we walk together with Christ in the power of his spirit. As we grow in spiritual maturity, the, the relationships are more pleasant. 
But the process of producing that, it can be unpleasant at times. And according to Proverbs 27, 17, sparks can fly. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But that's a good friendship. Usually, we'll put it this way. The kind of bruising that takes place in friendship, we would like it to be with the finesse of a surgeon with a really good scalpel under anesthesia. We just wake up and it's all taken care of. Usually it's not that way. Usually it is a bruising. And the sparks can fly. Are we willing to pursue those things anyways? We need to. That's where true friendship lies. The same principle also occurs in the New Testament, for there are many commands concerning how we treat one another. Among them are exhorting each other to live godliness, admonishing one another when we stray, reproving, rebuking those that continue in sin. Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17, Jesus explains the steps that we are to take in helping one another in battling sin. That's really what that passage is about. It explains this balance of, of love that covers and the faithful wounds of a friend. Now, most of the time we go to this passion, well, this is church discipline. Okay, it is church discipline. But church discipline isn't a negative. It's positive. It's an aspect of really caring about one another and wanting to help each other, of willing to be this faithful friend who will cover the transgression but is also willing to bruise if necessary. Matthew eighteen, fifteen is the first step. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. The goal is repentance, reconciliation, restoration. This is the part that's done in private and it equates with this love that covers sin. You don't want it broadcast everywhere. You're trying to protect their reputation. It's done with humility and self-examination and gentleness according to Matthew 7, 4 and Galatians 6, 1. There's no air of superiority. You're very aware of your own trespasses. You're not a spiritual cop. You're not a... uh, prosecuting attorney seeking some sort of conviction that will condemn you're a friend and you're there to help your friend escape the trap of sin in which they've stumbled and if the friend you've gone to confront is like the second half of proverbs 9 8 reprove a wise man he will love you the matter ends there and your love is just deepened if instead he's more like proverbs 15 12 a scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Well, the matter escalates because the love of God constrains you. The love for the friend should constrain you. You don't drop it. You push on. Matthew eighteen sixteen gives the second step. If he does not listen to you, take two, one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, at that point... You could be accused of all sorts of things. You're unloving. You're not my friend. You're a traitor. You're an enemy or even worse. But you bring one or two witnesses with you. And it's not to prove you're right and they're wrong. That's not what that's about. It's to establish truth. Perhaps there's a misunderstanding, 
the witnesses become the mediators, help clear things up. Maybe you are wrong in your understanding of the scriptures and the application of this person's life, and you need to be corrected. Your witnesses can help with that. So the witnesses help with mediation, they clear up misunderstandings, they establish the truth of what is going on and the application of the scriptures in the situation. And for that reason, it's not proper to talk to other people about it. Even those you're asking to be witnesses, all you need to be told is, hey, I need your help, I got a, a conflict that I need to get resolved, would you come and help me? Because if you start gossiping about it, you're going to prejudice their opinions. Proverbs 18:17 warns, the first to plead his case seems just until another comes and exposes him. Right? We want to be careful. Proverbs 17:10, if that's displayed, a rebuke goes deeper into the one who has an understanding than a hundred blows into a fool, the matter's resolved, it all drops. You have a good friendship again. If the one in sin demonstrates them to be a scoffer and does not listen to rebuke, well, it escalates further. Step three. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and tax gatherer. Now, there are actually two steps in that verse. The first is tell the church. Why? So the rest of the body can get involved in the exhorting and the admonishing, the reproving, the rebuking, but also maybe in finding alternative solutions. When we've had cases that have ended up coming to the congregation, I've been amazed at how often we find someone says, hey, I think I can solve this problem. They're having a problem here, here, and here. What if I did this and that would remove them out of the situation totally? Even opening up their own home so that there's no temptation for this person to continue to sin and have great accountability. That's a great solution. So we bring it to the congregation and they pray for this person. Again, if the rebukes in the church are heated... And there is repentance, there's reconciliation, there's restoration. That's the end of the matter. If not, then the one continuing in sin is removed from the fellowship of the body because they love their sin more than Christ. And they become a dangerous cancer to the rest of the body. Now, that's always done with grief. It's always done with heartache. And a friend will always long for restoration of fellowship with that person who had been a friend. But a godly friend cannot compromise on holiness and truth. He cannot become an offense to God himself in order to maintain a relationship with some other human. And that brings us back full circle, the purpose of your life and friendships. The purpose of your existence is to bring glory to your creator. The specific goal of every Christian is to do that by becoming like Jesus Christ in character. The purpose of your friendships is to help one another achieve that goal, becoming like Christ. You are to desire to point non-Christians to the Savior and assist those who do know Christ to mature in Him. And for those reasons, be careful about those who influence you as your close and intimate friends. Avoid friendships with those who are characterized by sin and wickedness and evil and immorality, foolishness, hot temper and gossip. At the same time, you strive to be a godly influence on those in every level of friendship. And that is done by following this example of Jesus. Humility, love, selflessness, sacrifice, loyalty, confidence, but also honesty and candor. All of us in this room have a lot of growth to still do. We're still becoming like Christ. The question that remains is, what is your commitment to pursue that maturity?
Those that do not, you will turn inward. You'll isolate yourselves from deep relationships that are going to challenge you to grow. You're going to shun them, put them off. Those that do, you're going to face the risk of hurt that comes with all relationships. And you will still pursue them so that you can be a blessing to others and they can be a blessing to you. If you're not doing that already, it's time to do it. And that means you've got to get involved. And we've got lots of things we try and offer so that you can get involved. Men's studies, women's studies, personal discipleship, uh, even the weekly prayer meetings. All these things are simply to allow you the opportunity to really get involved with one another. Seek out godly people. Get involved with them. Become a true friend.